Before we get started, I want to uh, just reiterate one of the announcements that Tanner made. Tanner's one of the members of the search team who partnered with the elders, and uh, we get, began a process way back in the spring, and the gentleman that's coming in next weekend with his wife, Brian is his name, Ashley, his wife, was one of our first applicants all the way back into April. So he is well known to us as a search team and as elders because we've spent uh, a number of weeks now just going through the process of learning about him and his heart. And, and we have recommended as elders that this be uh, the consideration for our next worship pastor. And we're excited for you to get to know him and his wife. So please make plans to be here uh, next week, especially in the morning because that will be a great time to interact with him during that first hour but come to Joyland, spend time there, just walking around and having some conversation. And uh, we want you to be a part of this process with us. So make sure that you are involved with him as much as you can. And we look forward to you uh, getting to know him. So as we've uh, looked at the history of the early church, as we've been going through the book of Acts, um, there's two things that kind of coexisted um, as we've looked at that story. On one hand... We've seen how the Christian church is growing as more and more people are putting their faith in Christ. At the same time, there is a growing persecution against those who believe. On one hand, you see people who are being healed, that lives are being changed. We know that day by day, the Lord is adding to their number those who are being saved. They are diligently, as a church, protecting unity, even in the midst of persecution. The good news of the gospel, as we've seen, is beginning to stretch beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. But the religious leaders are just as diligent on the other side. They are just as diligent in trying to silence the message of the gospel. The message of faith alone in Christ alone. As you remember, it started with a slap on the wrist, didn't it? As the religious leaders told the apostles, do not preach any longer in the name of Jesus. Well, the apostles could only obey God and not man, and so they continued to preach that message of salvation in Christ alone. So that slap on the wrist turned into a very painful flogging with a whip. And then last week, as we learn when Stephen stood up the, to preach, they put down the whips and picked up the stones, and they killed him. Stephen was martyred as an evil attempt to silence the message of the gospel. That tinderbox of emotion that has been growing week after week finally exploded into a full-blown persecution of the church. Stephen's death has now become a turning point in the life of the early church. But as we talked about in communion, we'll see once again that God will take an evil injustice and use it to accomplish a divine good. You would go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read a verse in Acts before we begin looking at the letter of James. But look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says that Saul was in hearty agreement with 
putting him to death, talking about Stephen. And here's the key. On that day, the day that Stephen was martyred, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. What this is telling us is that it is no longer safe to be a Christian in Jerusalem. That there was a persecution that broke out among all believers. Now, I want you to keep your finger here in Acts 1.8 and flip over to, or excuse me, keep your finger here in Acts 8.1, flip over to Acts 1.8. So see, it's confusing. It's a reverse of the numbers. 1.8. In Acts 1.8, as we read, as we began our study in Acts, it says, But you shall receive power. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. See, the persecution is causing the witness for Christ to spread now into the very places Jesus told them to go. In Acts 1.8, he says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all Samaria. And now here in Acts 8.1, we see that Christians are being scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. As Roger quoted from one of the early church fathers, the blood of the martyrs is in fact the seed of the church. That's what we see happening here. The blood of Stephen spread out because of his confession of faith in Christ has now caused the church to spread out to Jerusalem and Judea. And we see Christians taking that message of the gospel eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. And so as we see that happening, I want us to connect what is taking place in Acts chapter 8 with what we'll look at in the letter of James. So if you would go ahead and turn to James chapter 1, verse 1. Keep Acts 8, 1 in mind, and listen to what James writes as he begins his letter in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we learn how the Jewish Christians were being scattered from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And so now James writes a letter to these very same Jewish Christians who have been scattered abroad as a result of persecution. James, who has remained in Jerusalem, is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ who are now in exile. And it's really remarkable when you think about the story of James and who he is. And we need to be clear on who he is because there's several James to choose from in Scripture, right? Probably the most well-known is James, the brother of John. He's one of the inner circle, if you will, Peter, James, and John. He was one of those three men who were present during the transfiguration of Jesus, But this is not the same James who is writing this letter because James the Apostle was martyred before this letter was written. So this can't be him. 
Another option is one of the Jameses that we looked at in Acts chapter 1 when we see the list of the apostles. You'll look there and find James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this James, so it's highly unlikely that this is him. Instead, as we look at the story of Acts as it continues, we find that this is James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. If you want to, you can look at uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, and you'll see James listed there as one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. It says, is not this the carpenter, speaking of Jesus, the son of Mary and the brother of James? Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense to him. If you remind yourself about the story of Jesus, you know that his brothers and sisters didn't accept who he was initially. They didn't believe. We see that uh, being made evident in John chapter 7. If you want to look at John chapter 7 in verse 1, it says, After These things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, leave, go to Judea, that you you and your disciples may behold your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret. When he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. See, in this account, James and his brothers were testing Jesus. They're basically saying, look, if you're really the Messiah, then go to Judea and prove it. Show us. They needed proof because at the time, James didn't believe. In fact, James probably didn't believe all the way up until the resurrection of Jesus. But apparently, that was the turning point that ultimately spoke to his heart where James came to faith in Christ. If you want to, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what Paul writes when he's recounting the events after the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, for I delivered to you, in verse 3, chapter 15, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me, to Paul. Paul makes it clear that Jesus made a special point to visit James specifically. And apparently, as a result, James came to a place of faith in Christ as his Savior. That's why when he begins this letter that he now writes, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't highlight, notice, his relationship with Jesus through birth. He highlighted his relationship with Jesus through faith. Because for James, 
Jesus was both Lord and Christ, both God and Savior. James is a servant of God through faith in Jesus Christ like every single Christian. He's writing this letter to brothers and sisters in Christ who are scattered abroad. He identifies them as the the 12 tribes who are exiled. As we talked about when we looked at the story of Acts, many of those early believers, most all of them, were Jewish. These are Jewish Christians who are now scattered abroad into Judea and Samaria, facing all forms of persecution. And so James is writing this letter to those who are struggling in their faith. And just stop and, and kind of think about that a little bit. James, a late bloomer, if you will, a man who struggled with doubt, is now encouraging those who are struggling in their faith. He was a man who was exposed to the life of Christ more than most. He grew up in a home where he was surrounded by truth. He literally sat at the table with the Son of God. And yet he still struggled to believe. But there was a time where that struggle ended and he put his faith in Christ. And now he is writing to those who are in the midst of a struggle themselves. And I think it's really remarkable to see how this late bloomer in the faith now becomes a very strong leader in the early church. You'll see him all throughout the story of Acts moving forward. I've shared this story with you before, but it reminds me of my brother Jay. He was kind of a late bloomer in his faith. My younger brother, Shannon, and I both came to faith in Christ while we were in high school. Jay graduated from college, kind of went out and did his own thing. And there was a time when Terry and I were visiting her mom in Dallas, and my brother Jay, who was living there, called and said, hey, can I come over and visit, which is a little bit odd to begin with, but we said, absolutely, please do. So he came over and he said, look, having grown up in the church, uh, I've really still struggled with knowing what to believe. He said, there's so many different religions who hold to different things, and I've tried to go to different churches, and he says, I'm just confused. He said, so what I decided to do was just pick up the Bible and just read it from cover to cover to see if maybe it has an answer that I can't find in all these other places. And then he described for me what he learned. I have never heard a more clear description of the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith in Christ alone in my life. He said, that's what I believe. Jay, a late bloomer, who to this day, my family would tell you, (laughs) is the greatest example of faith we've ever seen. He's like James, a, a late bloomer who had a tremendous impact in the Christian life. Look at how it continues in verse 2. James writes and says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, remember, James is writing to people who are in the midst of persecution. It's very likely that they're dealing with feelings of of disappointment, of discouragement, as they're exiles in a land that's, that's not their home. We later learn that these same Christians are are struggling with issues of poverty. They're struggling with being wrongly accused and taken to court. And in the midst of all this difficulty, James says, 
consider it all joy. Some of your translations may say pure joy. Either way, it's the idea of a joy that is sincere. This is not pretend joy. This is pure joy. He says, and consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That trial may be a trial of temptation, which had to be very real in the life of these persecuted Christians, the, the temptation to just give in and go along, to relieve the pressure of persecution in standing for Christ. It could be the temptation that comes from this discouragement, the testing of our faith when things just don't go as you expect them to. James seems to cast a wide net to include any variety of trials that these Christians might be facing. But he's clear to say that their joy is not found in the trial. For James, joy is a fundamental expression of faith in the midst of difficulty. It's a joy that goes beyond what they experience to what they expect. Don't miss that. James is talking about a joy that goes beyond what they experience to what they expect. And we looked at a passage this morning, I think, gives a great picture of what that means. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're in James, it's just a couple of pages to your left. Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to read again verse 2, and I want you to listen closely to what's being said here. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So if we want to know what faith looks like, we look at Jesus, and this is what it says. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus looked past the suffering and the shame to find his joy. A joy that was not found in his circumstances, but was found in the assurance of a sovereign God who was in ultimate control. It went beyond what he was experiencing to what he expected. In other words, he found joy in suffering because of what he knew to be true and a future hope yet to be realized. I think that's exactly what James is talking about here when he's writing to these Christians. See, he knew that they were going through some hard times. He's not trying to to minimize their pain in any way and say, oh, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. Just have joy. That's not what James is saying. He knew that God was in sovereign control and that he would be their provision. If they would fix their eyes on Jesus, they would see their faith come alive. In the midst of the struggle, if they would fix their eyes on Jesus, they would see their faith come alive. They would find joy in the midst of their suffering because they would find Jesus sufficient to meet their every need. That's where the joy is. A joy that goes beyond what they were experiencing to what they expected and knew to be true. We can see that unfold. Look at how James continues in verse 3. It says, Knowing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says you can have joy based on what you know to be true. It's what you expect. It's what you believe. It's what you hold on to. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's it's a joy based on what you expect, what you know to be true. It's like we talked about a few weeks ago. When we encounter suffering, we know that suffering is never meaningless. It is never wasted. We are never alone. We know that to be true. We expect God to show up in the midst of our difficulties to prove that he is faithful. Also notice how James expands in verse 2 by defining trials as the testing of your faith. And let me clarify, this is not a testing of your faith that sets you up to fail. This is a test that proves that God is faithful. You see, His faithfulness is the reason we endure. The word endurance literally means to remain under. And when I think about that, I have this little picture in my head of the Olympic weightlifters. If you've ever seen those guys, they're amazing. I mean, the bar bends by the amount of weight on either side of that thing, right? And you can see them get down and they have to lift that up and then vault it over their head and remain under it. That's the picture that I have in my mind when I think of this word endurance, of to remain under the difficulty. And let me tell you, those guys didn't just show up on the gym one day and stack a few hundred pounds and lift it over their head, did they? They had to endure lots of trials in order to build their strength, and the same is true for us. Enduring trials builds faith muscles. Enduring trials builds faith muscles. Faith not in what we can do for God, but in what we experience God doing in us. See, this is not building muscle in order to, like a bodybuilder who stands in front of a mirror and poses so he can be impressed with himself. It's not what this is talking about. This is building muscles by depending on God and being impressed with Him. It's faith that leads to worship. Again, I think back to when I was in high school, and in baseball we would lift weights as part of what we did, and we would always do it in pairs, though. You had somebody who was lifting, and you had somebody who was called a spotter. And their job was just to help them finish out the number of reps. And as you've known, if you've ever lifted weights, rep number 10 is the hardest, right? It's that last one. And if you're a spotter, what you do is you just put your fingers underneath the bar and you just gently give them a little bit of help because often that's all they need. And then they can finish that out. And if they can't, you just take the bar and and put it on the rack. Well, faith is the assurance that God is spotting you. That he may actually give you more weight than you can handle, but never more than he can handle. His faithfulness is the reason we endure. And that endurance, as it goes on to tell us, has a perfect result. It says that you may be mature, perfect, and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this verse, and it makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) 
Because I see all these perfects and I'm thinking, I'm not perfect. So how does this work? Because clearly this is not talking about who we are apart from Christ because nobody is perfect. And it should make every one of us feel uncomfortable. Apart from Christ, I don't have what it takes. But because of him, I have all that I need. There's a great passage in Colossians. I want you to look at it with me. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And this is another passage that helps us understand what James is writing in his letter because Paul's saying the very same thing. In the original language, when James is talking about being perfect and complete, he's talking about this idea of wholeness. Okay? And and listen to how Paul takes that idea in Colossians and Listen to what he says in verse 28. He says, And when we proclaim him, admonishing, listen, every man, every man, woman, and child who has faith in Christ, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present. There it is again. Every man. There's no exceptions. And who are they? Complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his work, which mightily works in me. Paul is saying, I am complete because of the power of God at work in me. Apart from him, I don't have what it takes. But because of him, I have all I need. I lack nothing when I have Christ. And the same is true for all who believe. So you kind of see how James is trying to fit these truths together as he begins this letter to encourage those who are struggling. Tells them that you can find joy as you encounter any various trial, not because of what you're experiencing in that trial, but because of what you expect, what you know to be true. We expect God to work in our circumstances, however heavy they may be, to strengthen our faith. Knowing that that testing of our faith ultimately proves That he is faithful. And as long as we have him, we have all we need. We are whole. We are complete. We are sufficient. Or as Roger would say, we are adequate for all the stresses and demands in life. So I want you to just stop and think about how this applies to where you may be today. And I want to do that by beginning with the testimony of James. Because here's what I know. I know as I look out and I see families in this church that this church is filled with good and godly families. Parents who have been diligent to raise their kids to know and follow Christ. We see example after example after example. But we also know that despite having been surrounded by truth, sometimes our kids still believe lies. Kids who've grown up in great homes make bad choices, as we did. But as a parent, that is a heart-crushing reality. But I pray that the testimony of James gives you hope. Here's a man who sat at the table with the Son of God who was surrounded by truth like no one else who's ever lived, who, who slept in the same room as the way, the truth, and the life. 
yet he still had doubts. He struggled to believe, but Jesus never gave up on James. Jesus never gave up on James, and he never gave up on you. And he has not given up on those you love. He relentlessly pursues our heart. So be encouraged by James, a late bloomer, who had a significant impact in the life of the church. And remember this. No one, no one is ever outside the reach of God's redemptive hand. Ever. There are a couple more things that I don't want us to lose sight of that I think are significant in this passage. First of all, if if trials are so important in building our faith, as James clearly teaches they are, then we should not be so quick to run from trials when we encounter them. And, And I'll be honest with you and tell you, I'm probably the worst example of that, okay? I like to run. I don't like pain. All right? So when I encounter difficulty, I'm the first one that's going to try to find a way out from underneath it. But sometimes, what I'm learning as I get older, sometimes we need to pause long enough in the midst of the difficulty just to see what God might be doing. If you're going to run, then run to Him. That's where we need to run. The strength of your faith is based on the object of your faith. You lack nothing when you have Christ. Again, this is the example that my brother Jay gave to me. Because even in the midst of his battle with cancer, he said, I'm going to be healed. I don't know if it's on this side of heaven or next. I'm going to be healed. The strength of his faith was based on the object of his faith and the assurance of the promises of a sovereign God. And that faith is the example that I live for. And I believe that's the faith that James is calling us to here. So don't be too quick to run from hard things. Let God show you how to remain under the burden but still be able to bear the load. And not because you have the strength in and of yourselves, but because of his faithful provision. Apart from him, you don't have what it takes. But if you run to him, if you find your strength in him, then you've got all you need. He is sufficient to equip you for all the stresses and demands in life. Don't be too quick to run. The other thing I think we can see in this passage is don't be too quick to rescue. Again, me, another bad example. I'm not good at this. When I see people I love in a hard place... I want to rescue. I want to fix it. I want to take care of whatever their problem they're going through because I don't want them to struggle. But I want to give you a picture of something to consider that I hope you'll remember. Have any of you ever seen a butterfly trying to come out of a cocoon? Anybody ever seen it? If you've ever watched it, it's actually a painful process to watch. It's agonizing. It's slow. It's like, oh, good grief, how long is this going to take? And you see them inside there, and they're moving, and you're thinking, if I could just release them, and we'll end this thing. But the reality is, is, is the struggle is what helps them survive. Because as they struggle, they're pumping fluid into their wings 
that then allow them to take flight. And if you were to go in and release that butterfly without the struggle, they could not survive. The struggle is what gives them strength to survive. So don't be too quick to rescue those who are in a hard place. Yes, love them. Come alongside them. Speak truth into their lives. Remind them to look for God's hand because our trials are where we often see his presence most, right? Trials and the testing of our faith is where our faith comes alive. So don't be too quick to rescue, but that being said, sometimes we struggle and as a result of our own sin. Sometimes we face trials that we create for ourselves. That weight we carry is a consequence of our sin. And no matter how much you love someone who's in that place, you cannot rescue them. Because the only way to be rescued from our sin is through a heart of repentance. And you can't do that for anybody. They've got to come to that place themselves. Humble repentance is the only way to be rescued from sin. But really, no matter what the situation might be, the answer is the same. Whether it's a a trial that we encounter or one that we cause for ourselves, we still, in both cases, need to humbly go before the Lord and ask Him to show the way. He will either help you remain under or He will provide a way of escape. But either way, He's the answer. Our endurance is because of his faithfulness. So this week, let me encourage you to take some of these truths, look back on this passage, and maybe ask yourself some questions. And if I could, let me give you some to consider. The first question is this. What is God trying to teach me in the trials that I face? So just pause in the midst of whatever you're going through in life and ask yourself the question, What is God trying to teach me in the midst of the trials that I face? And then be honest. Are you running to him or are you just running from the pain? Are you running to him or are you just running from the pain? Do you need to remain under and see your strength built based on the provision of God and the faithfulness that he promises? Or do you need to look for a way of escape because this is a trial that you brought upon yourself as a consequence of sin? What's the answer? Just pause long enough to ask the questions to see what the Lord might say to you. Don't be too quick to run. Don't be too quick to rescue. Look to God and he'll show you the way. Remember, we have joy Not because of what we experience, but because of what we expect. We know that God uses all things to work together for a good and right purpose in our life. That apart from Him, we don't have what it takes. But because of Him, we have all we need. And if we will run to Him, we will find that He is faithful. And the more we do that, The more we run to him and the more that we find that he is faithful, we're going to see that our strength and faith grow stronger and stronger with time. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And that's the strength of our faith.
Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the reminder that our adequacy is ultimately based in your sufficiency. That we have everything we need to press through hard times for just the normal demands and stresses in life, but we are made adequate only because you are sufficient. That you are all we need. So Lord, help us to take an honest look at our lives and and even in the midst of difficulty, pause long enough to see what you might be wanting us to learn. To see ways in which you might intend to build our faith to show us how you are faithful. To strengthen us because of your provision. Lord, there may be times that we are in a hard place because we've created it for ourselves. Our sinful choices have created a burden that you never intended for us to carry. Lord, help us to pause long enough to come to a place of repentance and to see a way out that's different than what you intended. Lord, help us to follow you, to trust you, to run to you, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, because of what he knew to be true, he endured the cross and the shame and the seat at the right hand of God. That hope realized for him is equally true for us. May we be strengthened by that promise today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.